Hey there everyone, hoping you're doing well in general and trading safely in particular. This is Matthew Pipenberg and welcome to the Signals Matter podcast, episode number four, where we're going to try and make sense of the U.S. bond market and global bond market and look at some of the risks and opportunities. Welcome to the Signals Matter podcast, where it's all about cutting through the fog of financial media spin so that you can think, trade, and manage risk like an investor rather than a gambler. And now, here's your host, Matthew Pippenberg, a true market geek and legend in his own mind of weaving and mixing metaphor to make the complex simple. Hey there, many thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really appreciate it and are looking forward to being a part of your, mine, and our shared journey, navigating the fog of markets with heaps more candor and substance than what we feel is largely pablum and sell-side spin otherwise found on the mainstream financial media. Make sure to check out as well our broad menu selection of market video updates, blogs, and other podcasts at signalsmatter.com where we tackle everything from global market trends and opportunities to stock-specific commentary. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to download as well a free copy of the Signals Matter Investment Primer, which is a very user-friendly but deeply substantive collection of our best investment thinking and practices, really calling together over 50 combined years of security trading, law, and risk management. In the Signals Matter Investment Primer, we also address everything from macro indicators and portfolio construction tips right down to the grass level of individual security trading. It's yours free, no strings attached, so take a peek. So today, let's take a look at the, the, the bond market. Now, if you're a subscriber to Signals Matter, you might have had a chance to look in the market school where I have a long section there, uh, a long video clip or video update just on the bond market. We won't go into a lot of detail here on uh, yield curves and yield versus coupon and those type of details mathematically. They're simple, simple ratios. They're in the market school. But today, we're going to just kind of talk about the overall bond market, again, here in the U.S. and overseas, and try and see if it really is the safe allocation that traditionally it kind of has always been. You know, I say from you know my grandfather's market to your grandfather's market, um, from private wealth management's down the street to the big banks to the, the boutiques, it's been traditionally understood that if you're a more conservative investor, uh, a little more risk-averse, that you know it's better to keep a bigger allocation in bonds than in stocks the standard kind of pizza pie chart that you would get if you came into an, any any office bank or wealth management office if they thought that your risk profile was lower they'd recommend a higher allocation to bonds that could be a 60 40 or a 70 30 split with a higher allocation to bonds 60 percent in bonds maybe 40 percent equity if you were really risk averse and one of the things i kind of want to touch upon today is that might be the worst advice you could ever get uh, in this environment that we're in, really in the post-08 new normal that I talk about in other sections, other episodes, other white papers, other blogs. You know, is the bond market really the safe allocation that it used to be? And I and a lot of other credit managers that I talk to would argue it's, in fact, just the opposite. And so this is something you want to keep in mind when you're talking to your own advisor, looking at your own portfolio, looking at the types of bonds you have, the types of risks that are in the bond market. And there are opportunities as well. At Signals Matter, we're going to look at bonds as another asset class that will trade long or short based on signals and fundamentals. But the fundamentals in the bond market, as we'll kind of talk about today, just aren't that fundamentally sound. And again, 
It sounds kind of old to hear the gloom and doom, constantly negative things coming out of out of my mouth when it comes to these asset classes, but it's not something I enjoy talking about. It's just something that finally separated from the big banks um, and wealth management offices, I can talk about candidly with you and then you can kind of make your own conclusions. But anything I talk about in here, you're welcome to go to your own advisor again and kind of reality check and reality test so that you'll realize I'm not just ranting, but really trying to be as transparent as possible in these risks. I think before we talk about different types of bonds in particular, I think the the key thing is to understand the basic definition of a bond is an IOU. It's a debt instrument. It's not an equity instrument. It's not an equity interest in a company. So if you have a bond from Ford Motor Company, that means Ford Motor Company is going to pay you back money that you lent them. Whereas if you have a equity or a stock in Ford Motor Company, that means you have an equity interest in it. And companies like Ford or Macy's or Google or Facebook or Amazon can issue bonds and stocks. They can issue equity interests or they can also issue bonds, borrow money from the public, and then pay them back at a coupon or interest rate. Um, so that's you know key to understand that a bond is a debt instrument, not an equity instrument. Many of you probably know that, but just in case not, I wanted to kind of make sure that when we, look at, and when, we, when we look at bonds, when we talk about bonds, we're talking about debt. So when we're looking at the bond market, we're really talking about the debt market. And so as we look first at the United States, Clearly, if we're talking about a debt market or credit market, as they also call it, sometimes they call it the fixed income market, if we're looking at a debt market, then certainly we have to look at the state of the union, so to speak, or the state of the debt market in the United States. Um, and the bottom line is the U.S. really isn't in, in too much debt. And frankly, no tax reform or new Fed share or president can uncross the Rubicon we've passed and the amount of debt we have in the U.S. And this is, you'll see too shortly, that it's not just a U.S. problem, it's, 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 it's a global problem. But in the U.S., just as an example, I mean, U.S. business debt since the 2008 crisis has gone from $8.5 trillion to $13 trillion. But when you combine business, household, uh, corporate, and sovereign debt, national debt um, in the U.S., we're looking at a figure of about $66 trillion. That's an extraordinary number. Um, it's Again, when you talk about trillions of dollars, it's hard to even visualize the difference between billions and trillions. If you thought of a billion dollars, think of a skyscraper, that's a billion. When you think of a trillion dollars, that's the distance between here and the moon. So when you talk about $66 trillion in debt, in terms of the size of that debt, it really is unsustainable. And when you add in the $200 trillion of unfunded liabilities that are on the U.S. balance sheet, you know, the Medicaid and the Social Security, et cetera. You're talking about $260, $270 trillion in debt. And to keep that in perspective, that's more debt owed by the U.S. in general, uh, private, corporate, sovereign, unfunded. That's more debt in U.S. dollars than there is currency in the globe, in the world. So we actually have more debt right now than we have money in the world to pay for it. So there's clearly a disconnect. There's a disconnect in reality. A lot of people think you can kick that can, ignore that. We can always print more money if we're in debt. Uh, we can uh, do a great job of filibustering reality and ignoring it generation for generation. And to some extent, that's true. When I talk about the risk in the debt market, it's not necessarily a risk tomorrow or this evening. It's certainly a risk for the next generation, for my kids or your kids. It could even be a risk for us any month, quarter, or year if something breaks the dike. And we'll talk about possible triggers later. But, but for now, just keep in mind that the debt levels are extraordinary. And so the credit market, and therefore the bond market, has to be seen in the backdrop of this massive, massive uh, amount of debt. Um, 
when I when I look at bonds, again, there are all different types of bonds. There are bonds that companies issue; those are corporate bonds, and there are bonds that countries like the United States or Germany or Italy or France can issue sovereign bonds. There are bonds that cities can issue; those are called municipal bonds. From Stockton, California, to Detroit, Michigan, to Greenwich, Connecticut, there are bonds that, that municipalities can issue to pay for things like new hospitals or swimming pools or anything else. So you can have bonds and all sorts of different kind of assets or different types of um, different types of bonds, really. Um, and then there's another type of bond that we call a junk bond, or euphemistically, it's called a high yield bond. And uh, a junk bond, like the name suggests, is a bond issued by a company that usually has less stellar credit. So whether you know you're talking about think of it like a student, an A student would have a good credit rating, an F student would have a bad credit rating, and so if you're going to get a loan or give a loan to an F student with a bad credit rating, you're going to expect a higher yield or a higher return, so they call those high yield bonds. And so for assuming the risk of you know, loaning money or taking a bond from a less reputable or less credit worthy uh, offerer, you're supposed to get a higher uh, yield for that. Um, so that's kind of the, the types of bonds in the, in, in, in the corporate section, just like there are municipal bonds have higher risk bonds. Stockton, California, Detroit, Michigan are going to be higher risk bonds than Cherry Hill, New Jersey or Greenwich, Connecticut. So whatever kind of class of bond we're talking about, there's always going to be different types of risks in those bonds. So if you have a bond book, don't just assume it's a safe book until you look under the hood and see, well, what kind of bonds? Is it municipal bonds? Are they safe municipal bonds? Is it junk bonds? Uh, is it corporate bonds? And even corporate bonds have a whole different hierarchy of risk from investment grade to below investment grade, kind of just like students, they have ratings A, B, C, et cetera. So if you have low-grade investment corporate bonds, are going to be a little higher risk. Uh, so just keep that in mind when you're kind of checking your bond book. Just what is it? Is it diversified? Is it diversified across bond types? Is it diversified uh, across um, uh, return and creditworthiness? Is it diversified across geographies. These are all things you want to keep in mind, but I think regardless of what type of bond you have and in what region, whether it's Asia, Europe, or the U.S., the risk in the bond market and the backdrop of this massive amount of debt is just incredibly real and something that it's the first question you got to kind of think about regardless of the specific types of bonds you have. But as we kind of step back and look at the bond market and the backdrop of this massive amount of debt, let's kind of look at some of the more you know, patient-specific symptoms of this bond market. Um, there are a few things that really kind of stick out in a glaring way. And as you might not be surprised, I'm going to start with how did we get in this mess? And, you know, the, the usual suspect, my go-to punching bag, is always going to be the Federal Reserve. Um, and, and I want to kind of talk about that relation between the Federal Reserve and the bond market. Um, now, obviously, the Federal Reserve has two important powers that I've talked about in the past and in, in the episode on the Fed. Uh, the power to uh, set interest rates, of course, at least short-term interest rates. Uh, that's a, certainly a big power. That's the price of money, so that will certainly affect the bond market. Um, but more importantly than just that short-term interest rate setting that the Fed does and that everyone's watching all the time and the bond market is watching very carefully, what really happened with the Federal Reserve that's so extraordinary was in the in the wake of the 2008 subprime crisis, which really was a, a credit crisis when all those subprime mortgages were being packaged as kind of A-plus students that turned out to be D-minus students, and the banks had trillions of dollars of those bad bonds or bad credit. Those were structured credit. They were layers of different types of credits, but they were basically just bad bonds and bad collections of bonds 
called mortgage-backed securities or asset-backed securities or CDOs and CLOs. They had all these fancy terms, but they were basically just packages of bonds that had really dubious quality uh, characteristics and credit characteristics. Most of it was subprime, and they blew up. So when those bonds that were sold as solid gold turned out to be horse manure, uh, we had a bond crisis. We had a credit crisis. We had a problem in 2008. And the way that America solved that problem wasn't to punish the issuers or take a recession or take a hit in the gut for very bad credit underwriting. What the Federal Reserve basically did was go to the banks like Goldman or Morgan or Citigroup uh, and say, look, you've got a bunch of bad bonds on your books that you can't sell that nobody wants to buy. We're going to buy them for you and we're going to buy them from you. And they're, we're going to pay Tiffany's level prices for garage sale like bonds. So we're going to we're going to bail you out. We're going to bail out your bond books. So when we bailed out the banks, we didn't really bail out the banks. We bailed out the bonds that the banks held. So that created um, an interesting kind of moral hazard. But what we did is we printed money out of thin air over at the Eccles Building on Constitutional Ave at the Federal Reserve. We literally printed trillions of dollars out of thin air and bought a bunch of crappy bonds. So that prevented us from having a major crisis, a banking crisis and a bond crisis. But what it also did is it distorted credit markets. So you had an artificial buyer of all these mortgage-backed securities and low-quality, low-grade bonds. So not only did we bail out the subprime mortgage market and the banks, but we basically created a false sense of confidence in the bond market. And spending trillions of dollars to buy bonds that nobody else wants creates a, a false kind of bid or a perma bid or a and insurance that the bond market really has a lot of support. So with all that money pouring in, thanks to the Federal Reserve, into the bond market, the bond market obviously uh, rallied. Um, and when I say rally, bond prices went up. Now, understand that yields have an inverse relationship to price. So as bond prices go up, bond yields go down. And yield is really what you're looking at in terms of your return on your bond. If you have a bond and it's yielding 1%, that's not a great yield. If you have a bond that's yielding 14%, well, that's a better yield, obviously. But with the Federal Reserve buying all these bonds artificially and creating this artificial market, really from 2008 to 2014 under quantitative easing, spending trillions of dollars to buy those bonds, bond prices really spiked and therefore bond yields really went down. And yields is kind of what we're talking about here. We're looking at um, you know your return on your bond. Obviously, it's a little more complicated than that, but you want to keep in mind that keep in mind that bond prices and bond yields have an inverse relationship, and bond prices going up pushes yields down. Normally, when 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 yields are down, that's kind of the sign of a, a robust economy. Bond prices are going up because there's a real demand for bond prices. But when you think about it, this isn't a real demand; it's an artificial demand. So these bond prices really aren't based on mom and dad, you and me, or retail investors swarming out to buy bonds. A lot of it's um, bonds that were bought by the Federal Reserve under quantitative easing. Uh, so that's not necessarily natural demand, and therefore it's not a natural bond market. In any case, uh, without getting into a lot of detail, clearly the 2008 crisis became a 2008 binge uh, from 2008 forward in the bond market. And so the bond market massively, massively inflated. But also keep in mind that it wasn't just 2008 and, the, and the, the reaction or the response of the Federal Reserve that kind of created this bond bubble. Frankly, going all the way back to 1981 um, in the pre and the Greenspan era, when the Federal Reserve really made a conscious effort to um, keep interest rates low as well. They made a conscious effort to keep short-term rates uh, low. And so 
um, really the bond bubble uh, began all the way back in 1981 and has really been in a bubble ever since. 2008 just added a lot more helium into that bubble, but we've been in a bond bubble really since 1981. And when you're listening to the news or listening to your advisor or listening to me or listening to anyone else talk about markets, you'll hear that most of the time the conversation centers around stocks, equities, the fangs, uh, the big stock moves, the tech sector, the healthcare sector, the different sectors and equities. Very few people are really talking about the bond market. And I'll just say flatly that ironically, as we talk about all the risk and volatility potential in the equity market, I would argue in a lot of um, other portfolio managers and hedge fund managers would argue that the real bubble, the real risk is actually not the stock market, as risky as that is. The real risk is in the bond market. And another kind of unknown secret or hidden unspoken secret on Wall Street in the years that I was there and certainly when Tom was there is it's kind of like when you think of the varsity athletes in high school or college, you know, there's the difference between the varsity and the JV and the freshman squad. And, and in Wall Street, you know, the, the varsity athletes, so to speak, the smart athletes, the smart traders, the smart folks that came out of the schools that really understand risk aren't stock traders. They're really the bond traders or the credit guys and credit gals. And so the credit markets are really more complex. They're less regulated than the stock markets. There's more room for abuse. But the really sophisticated trading and the really sophisticated signals that show market risk in general come out of the bond desk. So bonds are very important, and our bond market is a major bubble right now. I think it's a bigger bubble, frankly, than the stock market. And I'll go into some of the reasons why. You can already tell the main reason is we've got an artificial demand created by the Fed. We've had low rates since 1981. And we have this um, really low-yield environment and a massive amount of volume of buying into the bond market. A lot of that volume comes from ETF flows or sovereign wealth funds. They just have to buy bonds. If you're an investor and you go to any retail kind of advisory business or you go to Wells Fargo or Ed Jones or you go to Wealthfront or Betterment or you go to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, they're going to put you in bonds anyway and take a percentage of that money for a fee. But they're going to make the quote unquote normal allocation to bonds. So there's always flows going into bonds. But you're not getting a fair price discovery on those bonds because it's so distorted by the Federal Reserve intervention post-08. So it's just a blender of problems in really pricing bonds and understanding the risk of bonds. And in the size of the bond market, as I've said, is, is so massive. I mean, if you look at, I look at the bond market every day and I look at the volume of flows of money into the bond market. They're massive, trillions and trillions of dollars into the bond market. But the, the daily trading volume is about 5% of the overall market. And what that means when I compare the volume or the size of the debt markets in the U.S. and Europe and Asia, and then I compare that against the actual trading volume, it's minute. And so if you think of the bond market as a movie theater um, and then the trading volume as the exit door, the exit door is about the size of a mouse hole. And so if anyone ever yells fire in this bond market, there's going to be no place to go, and the bond market will literally burn you alive. And I really mean you need to keep that in mind. This bond market is so inflated in size and price, and yet the trading volume is so small that if and when there is a bond problem, and I'm going to argue a few reasons why there will be, um, you're not going to be able to get out of your bond positions. You're not going to be able to get out of that burning theater, and you're, you're just going to see bids ignored, and your prices going down, 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 and yields going up, 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 and you just can't get out of your bond book. Um, but this is what happens when the Federal Reserve, rather than natural supply and demand, um, puts its dirty fingerprints onto an asset class like bonds. 
And so with the combination of low rates since 1981 and then the massive just steroid stimulus of 2008 when the Fed directly intervened in the bond market and bought mortgage-backed securities in U.S. Treasuries because no one else would, and to keep the economy, quote, in recovery mode, I call it binge mode. But when they did that, um, you know, bond prices really, really went up and you were getting very, very little return or very little yield because as price goes up, yield goes down. And so bond investors weren't getting a lot of yield for their bond investment, especially in the higher corporate grade or the higher credit rating bonds, bonds that had better stability, better names behind them. You were getting very little yield for that. So if you were trying to make any money on your bond book, you would go deeper and deeper into riskier bond investment types. Uh, you would go deeper and deeper into, say, junk bonds, because junk bonds offer a higher coupon and a higher yield. So your advisor might tell you, go into some junk bonds, you're getting a better return. Certainly you're getting a better return, but you're getting higher risk. There's always, always higher risk for higher return. So, you know, as that was going on, um, you know, people have had to go further and further on the risk branch to get minimal yield. Now, remember what I said earlier about junk bonds, you're supposed to get better return, um, uh, better yield for your junk than you are for your corporate or investment grade bonds. Um, right now, as another symptom of just the completely distorted credit markets, um, the U.S. bond market's about $3 trillion in size. Globally, excuse me, the U.S. junk bond market, let me caveat, the U.S. junk bond market is about $3 trillion in size. Globally, the junk bond market is about $5 trillion in size. This is an astronomical number for junk bonds. And the reason you're seeing such a high volume, again, is because you're not getting return on sovereign bonds. You're not getting return on the Treasury or the German Bund or the JGB, the Japanese government bonds. You're not getting good returns. So investors are going deeper into the weeds of risk and buying these junk bonds. But the irony is these junk bonds or quote unquote high yield bonds are a misnomer. I think the big joke is the, the high yield bond market really isn't that high of a yield. It's I'd call it the low yield junk bond market because the spread on yield uh, between the 10-year treasury and a junk bond, the 10-year being quote unquote the safest bond because God knows the U.S. will never default. They'll print money before they'll default. So the yield in the U.S. 10-year treasury is about 2, 2.2, 2.4% right now in the two range. But, you know, the yield on junk bonds is only about 3 or 4% higher than that. In the U.S., you're getting very little yield for tremendous amounts of risk. Um, so that's one obvious symptom of risk here in the U.S. is just the size of the U.S. junk bond market and the relatively low yield or return you're getting for it. It's really not my grandfather's junk bond market either. You're getting almost no real return for the risk. You know, another thing that we're seeing, I'm seeing in the bond market, in the retail sector, you're seeing a lot of companies that are being eaten alive by e-commerce or private equity scams and LBOs. A lot of retail sector uh, names like you know, Payless Shoes to Macy's to others, JCPenney and Sears are issuing bonds because they just can't make any money. So they need, they need to get some debt issued so they can keep operations going. But I'm predicting, a lot of credit managers are predicting that there's going to be at least 30,000 retail closings between 2016-2018. So you're not going to get a lot of return on those bonds. Those are getting more and more risky. Um, the auto sector is another clear symptom of a bond problem. There's been a massive bubble um, fed uh, by, again, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, in the auto market, in the auto automotive markets, or the the car sector, the auto sector. Uh, they've had a great tailwind since the crisis in 08, when the Fed bailed out uh, credit markets and certainly even 
the U.S. government directly bailed out um, automotive uh, companies. And so since then, with rates set very low by the Fed, it's been very easy. If you can fog a mirror, you can get a car loan. Um, you're seeing loans now where 98% of the car payment is done through debt, you know, to put much of a down payment down. Uh, you're talking about 70-month payout periods where basically by the time you pay off that car, it's going to be already in the junkyard. They extend the payments out. But they're getting more and more desperate. Um, there's about 108 million outstanding car loans, and the size of that debt market is about $1 trillion in car loans. And the majority of those loans are subprime loans, just like there was subprime housing loans that led up to the subprime auto cri or housing crisis in 08. We're seeing a similar kind of dubious lending practice and underwriting practice in the auto uh, section or the auto loan sector, excuse me. And you have a huge, just massive subprime bubble there in automotive bonds. Um, but, you know, that's just another symptom. I think another really big symptom of the bond market bubble and bond market crazy is sovereign bonds. And again, sovereign bonds are bonds issued by governments or countries, not companies. Uh, in the U.S., the, the most obvious sovereign bond is the Treasury. The U.S. 10-year, there's a 30-year, and there's shorter-duration Treasuries. But the 10-year Treasury, um, you know, you're getting a yield of about, like I said, 2.2%, 2.4% for the 10-year. It's a pretty weak return uh, for the 10-year Treasury, a pretty weak yield. And the reason it is so weak is, like I said, you've got the Fed had been buying to the tune of trillions of dollars those U.S. Treasuries and those other mortgage-backed securities, so that created a boost in price and a decline in yields. But if as bad as things are in the U.S., it doesn't quite reach the level of crazy that we're seeing overseas because when the U.S. had its crisis in 2008, the playbook of having a central bank print money to buy bonds that no one else would is a playbook that the European Union and the People's Bank of China picked right up on after we did. By the way, the Bank of Japan had done this when the Nikkei crashed in 89 when they started printing money out of thin air to buy their own bonds. That was called quantitative easing. Actually, the Japanese invented it. The U.S. just took it to higher levels uh, for more, quote-unquote, support, more robust support. But all it did was create a bigger bubble, a bigger credit bubble. But just like the U.S. printed money out of thin air to buy bonds, uh, the European Central Bank and the Bank of uh, China, People's Bank of China did the same thing. And certainly the Bank of Japan continues to do this at record-breaking uh, percentages, just an extraordinary amount of debt-driven um, survival mode. Um, but the, the level of, um, of bond buying by central banks in Europe has gotten so bad that they've been pushing up the price so much in the bond market and the sovereign markets overseas and in Europe that you're actually getting a negative yield. You're actually buying a bond that you know you're going to lose money on but you're doing that with the assumption that, well, it's better to lose a little bit than a lot. So you're actually getting negative yielding bonds um, uh, in, in, when you buy those sovereigns. The biggest culprit of all is Japan, which has negative yielding bonds in Asia. I was looking at the JP Morgan GBI Broad Index, which is a big index uh, ETF of sovereign bonds. Um, when I looked at them uh, recently, I think the sovereign bonds with negative yields in that in that particular um, product that GBI brought index, the number of sovereign sovereign negative yielding bonds rose by 60 percent, over seven and a half trillion dollars worth of negative yielding sovereign bonds. When you see that level of negative yields, that just is a screaming red neon sign of this bond market is overbought, overinflated, completely distorted. 
in the U.S. I've talked about this under the central bank and when I talked about the Fed in one of the other episodes on the Fed. It's just as crazy here, though, because we've been buying so many bonds that the yield on the 10 year is really like two and a half, two point four percent. There's such a price support and with that price going up, the yields are going down. But even with that ridiculous support from the central banks in the U.S., um, when you look at real inflation, not the one reported by the CPI, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when you look at real inflation, the one we know exists, real inflation is probably closer to 5 to 7% right now. And if you actually were to do correct math rather than distorted math of the CPI, which is something I write about in the blogs, you're getting a negative return on the 10-year Treasury as well. So you're actually losing money in the bond market when you adjust for inflation. Uh, if you adjust for the inflation by the CPA, you're probably making two-tenths of a BIP of percent. If you adjust by real inflation, not reported by the CPA, or the CPI, excuse me, but by common sense and by the old scale we used to use to measure inflation fairly, you're automatically losing money the moment you buy a treasury or the moment you buy a bond. Frankly, you're even losing money on junk bonds when you look at real inflation. But I'm not going to get into a big discussion here on inflation and how it's measured, the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the CPI. It's a great blog on that and Signals Matter in the blog section. Under the bond category, you can see an article there about CPI. But suffice it to say, you're just not getting a lot of return, a lot of yield for the risk in this bond market. Um, so I think a lot of those things that I've talked about here, when you look at the junk bond spread over the 10-year, when you look at inflation-adjusted return, when you look at the retail sector, when you look at the auto sector, when you look at rate policy from 1981 in particular, in 19, or not, in general in, 19, in 2008 in particular, you see just a massive tailwind for a bond bubble. We're in a massive bond bubble right now. And, you know, this makes me think or rethink bonds as not a safe allocation. And I really suggest you reality test your own advisor or your own portfolio on some of these assumptions that bonds aren't the bond market they were in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, and they aren't the safer allocation. And finally, let me just close by kind of suggesting one or two of the kind of risks we could see in this bond market because it is so thick, so top-heavy. There is so little trading volume despite the massive size of this market that what really could trigger a bond sell-off where bonds prices would go down and then yields and interest rates would go skyrocketing up. Um, certainly, if the Federal Reserve um, does what it says it does and actually starts raising rates, which they've said they do for years, and they really haven't. They've done minuscule 25 bips here, 25 bips there, very minuscule rate hikes that haven't really impacted the bond market yet. Because when the Federal Reserve raises rates, theoretically, bond prices go down and yields would go up. The Fed doesn't want to do that. They don't want yields to go up because they don't want to pay more for their own debt. So they're going to talk a good game, but you're not going to see the Fed actively raising rates in any fundamental way, whatever they say they won't. Um, but the Fed is trying to reduce its balance sheet, which has risen to over $4 trillion since 2008. So they're going to go from what's called quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. So rather than buying bonds, they're going to be selling bonds or holding them to maturity. So that's going to mean more issuance of bonds or more selling of bonds, excuse me, and that means more bonds come into the marketplace. As more bonds come into the marketplace, the price of bonds will go down and the yields will go up. So as quantitative easing turns to quantitative tightening, uh, that's going to also add more pressure to bond prices going down and treasuries prices going down, so it'll be a greater volume. In addition to that quantitative tightening move, we're also talking about a debt ceiling, which I haven't talked about, but I certainly write about, again, in the Signals Matter blog section. You can look up the debt ceiling articles that I've written there. 
uh, we've been kicking the can on the debt ceiling as we always do. Every time a debt ceiling comes, we postpone it, then revote it, and we postpone it, then we revote it, and eventually we issue more debt because we're in debt. Our government, our country, in the last decade or so, survives off debt, not GDP. Our GDP stagnates at about annualized rates of under 2%. So for us to live the American dream, the government just keeps issuing more debt, which means they keep issuing more treasuries. So when this debt ceiling got postponed from September to December, uh, it'll probably get postponed again until March. But one way or the other, they're going to have to face the debt ceiling, issue an extension, kick the can, extend the debt ceiling even higher past the trillion, trillions and trillions that we're at now. And they're going to have to issue more treasuries. So when the combination of quantitative tightening from the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government extending its debt ceiling, there's going to be more and more issuance of U.S. treasuries, which means more and more volume of treasuries into this already inflated bond market, which means the prices will go down and yields will go up. Regardless of what the Fed says or does, yields will go up as more and more of these treasuries enter the market. So there's a lot of risk there just watching that, the combination of quantitative tightening and the debt ceiling and then just the overall inflated nature of these markets, you're going to see a higher volume of treasuries and bonds entering the markets and therefore prices going down and, and long-term yields and long-term rates therefore going up regardless of what the Fed tries to do. Again, the bond market controls long-term rates, not the Federal Reserve. Keep that in mind. So what really could be another trigger besides these things happening at the Fed or at the government level with uh, debt ceilings and quantitative tightening? I think the biggest risk in the bond market is the, is the bond market itself. It's just like 2000 with the dot-com market. When a market just gets that big and that fat, sometimes there aren't specific triggers. It's just its own weight kind of kills it or in deflates it. All market bubbles, by the way, pop, and the bond market's no exception. What we're going to be looking for really and what you need to be looking for is a sell-off in bonds. And how could that happen? Well, there's any number of ways it could happen. Again, it could be the own weight of the bond market. But one thing you want to look for is, you know, I look at hedge funds in London or in New York or in Singapore, and I talk to credit guys. They're all kind of saying, man, we're not getting a lot of yield for our risk. We're not getting a lot of yield for these bonds. And, I, you know, you can imagine some sovereign wealth fund or some Singapore or some, you know, London-based hedge fund in one day decides to sell a bunch of its bonds. And then another New York hedge fund hears about that. Another credit fund overseas hears about that. And then they start to sell off their bonds. And then another group starts to sell off their bonds. And it basically becomes a run on the bond market. People start pulling out of the bond market. And as that happens, prices start to fall as demand slips. As prices start to fall, you see a bond crisis, yields start to spike, and then things just kind of slip out of control. That could very easily happen for any number of reasons. And the best way to monitor that risk, and certainly one of the many indicators we look at, um, is looking at the yield. I think on the 10-year treasury is probably the safest thing to kind of keep your eyes on. Again, since yield and price move inversely, when price starts to go down because there's a problem with bond demand or in the bond market, you start to see a sell-off in price, yield will go up. And I think when you see the yield on the 10-year treasury hit 2.6%, stay there, hold, and then continue to go higher, that's going to be a screaming red signal that prices are falling in the bond market. They're selling in the bond market. There's a run in the bond market. And be very, very careful for that 2.6% number on the 10-year. Bill Gross, who's a kind of an iconic bond trader out of PIMCO and now at Janus and came from all these other places. Bill Gross is kind of the bond king. He, he uses that bogey of the 10-year. The he looks at if it gets past 2.4%, then that's a real red flag. He's probably right. I'm looking more at 2.6%. But either way, when you see the yield on the 10-year hitting 2.4, 2.6, and then going above and holding there, that's a 
pretty good sign this bond market has reached the end of its rubber band stretch. Again, we're talking about a bond market that's been blowing and fattening up since 1981 in general and certainly since 2008 in particular. Just want to close by saying, be please be careful to reevaluate bond risk. Don't think it's just the safe allocation if you're bearish or worried about volatility in the stock market and you think an allocation to bonds is a safe alternative. We really would argue the best free advice we can give you is don't make that assumption. Uh, bond and stocks are highly correlated in these bubble markets. Uh, stocks and bonds can go down together. They don't zig while the other zags like they used to do traditionally. Don't think of bonds necessarily as a safer allocation. So, you know, that's it for today on the bond market. There's a lot more uh, to be seen in the Signals Matter blogs on bonds. And if you're a subscriber, you can certainly go into the uh, market school where I talk a little bit more about bonds in detail, about the Federal Reserve in detail and kind of how those things work. But if you're not a subscriber, you can call together a lot of this just by listening to the podcast on the Federal Reserve listening to this um, podcast again on bond markets, make sure you understand uh, the inverse relationship between price and yield and coupon and, and that. But really, price and yield is the key. And, and, and watch that 10-year treasury, that 2.6% number. When you see that number come, hold, and get higher, you might want to really think about being one of the first out rather than the last out of that burning movie theater. Hope this helped. Look forward to talking to you on the next, uh, next uh, podcast with Signals Matter. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, don't forget to surf over to signalsmatter.com and check out our wider menu of free market blogs, video updates, and podcasts, as well as download our free Signals Matter Investment Primer, which is a deeply substantive but really user-friendly dive into everything you're going to need to know about the risks and opportunities investors face in today's markets. For Signals Matter subscribers, we know you're enjoying our daily market analysis, our weekly security signals, and monthly recession watch which ensures you profitable trades while keeping an ever watchful eye out for those market icebergs ahead so you're never looking for a lifeboat or another 2008 moment when corrections come to steal away gains. We really thank you for your trust and obviously look forward to inviting any of you newcomers to our exceptional investing community here at Signals Matter. Our best to all of you, be well, and as always, be safe with your investing.